bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you, Father, for giving us the gospel and reminding us of the power of it, of the substance of it, the grace and the love behind it, the plan, all of it, to your glory. What a fantastic privilege it is to partake in this thing called life. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 21. Uh, turn your Bibles, please, 1 Peter 1.6. We'll start where we began on um, Sunday. 1 Peter 1.6, a friendly reminder of the proof of your faith, Dokimion, what that means. Uh, we had that whole, I, I'm, in my head I'm calling it the Tuesday evening experiment. Uh, which seemed to resonate with some people. I had some good feedback from congregants after Sunday's message that were truly moved by it, uh, understood it, were convicted, and uh, have made some um, you know, positive realizations in their own lives. First Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, I mean, most of us, can relate to being distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about that. The reason that you can even get through trials and tribulations is because of God's grace. Uh, and Jesus Christ is the fullness of grace and truth. So. Uh, being in union with Him uh, and understanding these kinds of things, they edify us, they build us up. And when we're able to go through these things hand-in-hand hand with Christ Himself at our side by grace, uh, was a there's a certain proof. And that's that Greek word, dokimion, that keeps coming up over the years. This proof is, uh, is just part of life. Um, it means test, act of testing, derives from an assayer's terminology. An assayer is the person who tests metal for purity. The proof of your faith is meant to edify the true Christian by putting said faith to the test by fire. So obviously the context here, as far as Peter was concerned, is for believers, individuals who had faith to be tested. And when it is tested, the proof of it results in something. Putting something omnipotent, so to speak, to the test uh, results in uh, sort of a polishing, if you would, um, uh, an annealing uh, and such. Verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation or deliverance of your souls obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation or deliverance of your souls. As most of you will attest, so much of the spiritual life is a test of faith. That is a major portion of the spiritual life. I mean, we live in a world that's frankly antagonistic to believers that cannot stand Jesus Christ doesn't understand, doesn't want grace. So if you show up on the scene with a certain confidence, with a certain grace, you will be persecuted. And that's what happened to Jesus Christ. He was the biggest threat that the powers that be at that time faced. Uh, and they couldn't, obviously, snuff him out. And you as representatives of Christ are going to at least feel some piece of that in time. So life itself is a test of faith. If it's not, it's, and it's not if a believer suffers, it's how and when, all for the glory of God. So relative to the proof of your faith, faith must be put to the test in order to consummate it. I've taught this multiple times in the past from the pulpit. Faith must be put to the test in order to consummate it, a la 1 Peter 1.7. 
Faithfulness is fruit of faith, but never a substitute for it. And that's that distinction the Spirit was making on Sunday. Faithfulness is fruit of faith, but never a substitute for it. Even an unbeliever can be faithful in a religious context. Matthew 7, 21-23, for example. Even an unbeliever can be faithful in a religious context. Therefore, a person's faith must be tested in order for their own confidence in it to be established. Otherwise, one never really knows. That's the value of seeing the proof of your faith, having it actually tested by life itself. A person's faith must be tested in order for their own confidence in it to be established. Otherwise, one never really knows. I mean, technically, you could spout off at the mouth all you wanted about how magnificent your grace is uh, up until the point it's actually tested. And I think a lot of people realize that the hard way, um, that their faith maybe just isn't what they thought it was, which is not the greatest thing to realize, but if you have humility, it's a good thing. Because before you were in the dark, and how great is your darkness when you think you're in the light. So it's actually a very good thing in that sense. The practical application is, for believers, salvation slash deliverance is a function of faith, not faithfulness. And I was thinking of Hebrews 11.1, 1, which defines faith in a very short order form. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So for believers, salvation, deliverance is a function of faith, not faithfulness. In other words, some people, I believe, can dupe themselves into thinking they have great faith just by looking at their so-called faithfulness. But their faithfulness is just human good works. I mean, heck, who knows? Maybe they just like going to church because their friends are there. Or maybe they like doing you know, nice things for other people as a, quote, show of love but it's just because they either have nothing else to do or they're doing it so that people look at them and say, you're such a swell guy. Who knows? But those are the kind of conversations that the Spirit wants to have with each individual. Conversely, if that passage, which it was, was pointing at we believers, conversely, those who lack faith are not given a sense of assurance, but rather are shown that their so-called faith was, at best, faith in their own faithfulness. For example, human good. And that's a, maybe a difficult pill to swallow, but a good one. Again, if you think you're in the light, but you're actually in the dark, and then someone turns on the light and you realize that fact, well, that's a good thing. That's a step in the right direction. And that's the beauty of humility. You kind of just take it in stride and say, well, I'm a bonehead. Surprise. Um, you know, I didn't have what I, ha- I thought I had, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. So those who lack faith are not given a sense of assurance, and the Tuesday evening experience was a perfect example for some who have intimated such things to me since. Uh, those who lack faith are not given a sense of assurance, but rather are shown that their so-called faith was, at best, faith in their own faithfulness, which is really human good. So the Tuesday evening experiment is a perfect example of this for some of you. It's good then at this time to read some of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, This concept of individuals thinking they have great faith by means of showing faithfulness. He speaks to it on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which technically runs from Matthew 5.1 to 7.29. But we'll just grab a portion of it for now, starting with the part that contains Jesus' warning regarding so-called human faithfulness. Go to Matthew 6.1. Human faithfulness. Matthew 6.1. It's not a great experiment to think about because I don't think it's appropriate given Scripture on what it means to gather together, encourage one another, but technically you could have an individual that never goes to church be more, have more faith than the quote-unquote faithful person that goes to church, but really doesn't have any faith. Does that make sense? I wouldn't put that to the test. Some people are like, well, let's put that to the test. I'm not coming for a year. See how that works. <laughs> I'm just saying, technically, it's not about, quote-unquote, always about those things. Matthew 6, 1. So Jesus spoke to this Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. 
Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, <clears throat> do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who, are, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whatever you uh, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the point the Spirit's making is one from our previous series on justification by faith up here on the board, if you think that the act of faithfulness called out as fruit of faith in the Bible is the basis of your justification, you are deceived. That is your flesh trying to stake a claim to some sort of a work of your own. No, you know, God is never impressed with human good, in other words. Uh, man is not designed to deliver himself, to save himself, or deliver himself a la salvation, after salvation proper even. So if you've been focusing on the acts of faithfulness and you think that's your faith, if that's supplanted the very faith or the examination of your faith, um, the Spirit's moving you to reconsider, in other words. So in retrospect, consider that the Tuesday evening experiment, now that it's almost over, was the Holy Spirit's testing your faith. That's how I look at it in retrospect. I mean, I'm looking at other things as the shepherd here. I know what he's been doing. I've been writing. Book's done, by the way, the booklet. I'm going to give it to you uh, as, instead of the blog. Um, so be prepared. It'll take an average reader a couple hours, maybe, an hour or two to read. So be prepared. Um, I know what he was doing on that front from my perspective, but I also know what he was doing in, for your perspective. And it was really a test. Some of you went through some gyrations in the beginning, you know, playing a couple little games here and there and caught yourself quickly and, you know, said, oh, I guess I was kind of doing that thing. I guess I kind of wasn't uh, doing this thing that the Spirit wanted me to do. I guess my quote-unquote faithfulness wasn't quite up to snuff with the so-called faith that I thought I had. But in any event, that's what he was trying to do for you. Okay? Changing gears a little bit, in keeping with the theme of Sunday's message, 
we will now be turning our attention back to the grace of God. Uh, anytime you think about sanctification at any level, at any level, that movement, the power to move a person is grace. So grace and sanctification, they're not interchangeable words, but they certainly are fused. You can't talk about sanctification without grace. If you talk about grace, God's will says he'll sanctify you. So they're fused. So we're going to talk about that last word in our series title, sanctification. That is our last order of business that we need to tend to prior to continuing on. But before we do that, and he started this on Sunday, we need to address a heart issue dealing directly with the abundance of Scripture that puts an arrogant heart up against the gospel. So now that we have the gospel situated, that's what the book's on, by the way. Um, Now that we have the gospel situated rightly in our soul, up front, revisited the whole nine yards, polished up real nice, everybody's comfortable with it. Well, what happens when arrogance hits it? What happens when we bring forth via the Great Commission, we bring forth said gospel, and there's arrogance sitting there? at the doorstep. Well, before we even continue, (coughs) up here on the board, relative to the force of the gospel, we know dogmatically God's will, which is who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. We know that that's God's will. And we also know that God does everything possible to save man. However, he won't ever breach man's free will. But we know that dogmatically, his will is to save everyone. And that he'll do everything possible to meet his own desire. And you've got to think about it from a Godward perspective, too. When someone's saved, that brings glory to God. When a person is saved... The salvation act itself brings glory to God. So God does everything possible to save man. Why? Because ultimately he wants to bring glory to himself. (laughs) And that's a beautiful thing. But he won't ever breach man's free will. The good news is that if it is possible, God will save man. God saves. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Jesus Christ is God. God saves us by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So God's the one who saves. We know that he wants to save. That's his will. So we have the force, if you would, the impetus for the gospel. And it's a tremendous force, a magnificent force. And that force is God. We might think of it this way in lay terms. Grace is the vehicle. Faith is the channel through which salvation is endowed. When Paul wrote both 1 Timothy and Ephesians, quoted there, he did so from a perspective that persists throughout his epistles. We might say, from Sunday's lesson, to Paul, the gospel was... A reality, not a past experience. And I think that's one of the great dangers of whittling down the gospel to just forensics, if you would, or just these, you know, moment in time. The gospel is life. The gospel is a reality. And if it's inclusive the way it should be of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that same person indwells you, then it becomes the source of your life. I mean, he is eternal life after all, being God. So Paul, to Paul, the gospel was a reality, not a past experience. So don't ever let that thing happen in your soul where it's like, okay, I'm saved, now what do I do? That's like past tense. No, say this to yourself. Say that you're saved in the present tense, if that makes any sense. I'm saved. I'm saved. Like every day, I'm saved. I'm living the gospel reality. This is the greatest thing that could ever possibly happen to me. I'm saved. That's a present tense 
issue, not something, okay, I was saved, you know, 60 years ago, la-di-da. I just can't wait to get the heck out of here. Well, that's not the attitude he wants either. That's the person who's lacking in what I just described, not living in the gospel reality. The person who just keeps talking about, just get me out of here, just get me out of here. When's the rapture coming? Get me out of here. They're missing something in their soul, and it's the gospel reality. It's not the way that Paul spoke. Go to Romans 1.1. We'll get to Romans 1.16, but we're going to get there through Romans 1.1. It's very hard even to, to poke your head into any part of Romans 1 without going right to the beginning. It's almost like you're remiss in doing so. Romans 1.1. So try to gather Paul's heart on this. And it's wonderful the way he starts, because he says, I am a slave, a doulos. And he's sight. It's not like being a slave is a problem. To Paul, it was a privilege. It was wonderful. It was deliverance. It was freedom. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a pretty long thought, isn't it? I guess Paul had a lot to say in the first seven verses. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live, shall live by faith. Again, the point on the board is that to Paul... The gospel was a reality, not a past experience. We could go on and on about Romans 1, 16 and 17. Up here on the board. An unbeliever, though, will never live by faith, even if professing Christianity. They might be very faithful, so to speak, but an unbeliever is not going to live by faith, even if they profess Christianity, the best they will ever produce is human faithfulness. So we need to talk about that. What happens when the arrogant heart hits or meets up with the gospel? In looking at Paul's words to Timothy on Sunday, we considered what Jamieson, Fawcett, and Brown said on 1 Timothy 1.19. I'll read it. There was that phrase, made shipwreck with respect to the faith. Faith is the vessel in which they had professedly embarked of which good conscience is the anchor. 
The ancient church often used this image comparing the course of faith to navigation. The Greek does not imply that one having once had faith makes shipwreck of it, but that they who put away good conscience make shipwreck with respect to the faith. So these guys, Jamieson, and Fawcett and Brown, bring up a pivotal point regarding apostasy, which originates from that Greek word apostasia. For believers truly living in the gospel reality, grace rules the kingdom of heaven. It rules our domain, Christ's domain, that is. So the big picture is salvation and sanctification are simultaneously awarded as realities. In other words, if a person is saved, they are sanctified positionally and guaranteed sanctification experientially. To God, these are simultaneous realities. And that's what it means. In other words, from faith to faith, these things are tethered to one another. It's not like, okay, I'm saved and now there's this whole other, quote-unquote, let me super-categorize this thing out. It's a whole other phase. No. They coexist, you see. As far as God is concerned, it was like, done. Sanctification is sanctification. He says, I'm going to set you apart for me, for my glory. And I don't, you know, necessarily care how you human beings go about categorizing this stuff, but this is the way I see it, says God. And that's what he's, what's being said on the board. If a person is saved, they are sanctified in every sense, uh, even though it seems to man that it takes some time. But remember, God's not bound to the construct of time. We need a, a functional, at least a working definition of apostasy. Sorry for the eye chart. But I got this from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Apostasy, defection from the faith, an act of unpardonable rebellion against God and His truth. The sin of apostasy results in the abandonment of Christian doctrine and conduct with respect to the covenant relationship established through prior profession of faith, apostates place themselves under the curse and wrath of God as covenant breakers, having entered into a state of final and irrevocable condemnation. Uh, and that's something we've looked at already in brief with uh, the likes of Hebrews 6 and even part of Hebrews 10. But we're going to look at other places this evening. So to be clear, apostasy isn't a believer's tantrum against God, because of who hasn't done that, right? Oh, I'm the only jerk. Apostasy isn't a believer's tantrum against God. You know, where you run away and you're all mad and you get all huffy, you know. That is what kind of we see with Job. Of course, none of us can, I don't think, can claim that Satan is smiting us with boils and killing our families and our animals and our ruining our workplace and everything else and crushing our home. Does anybody have those problems? I don't think so. But just because you lament over said suffering that we already talked about doesn't mean that you're defecting. It means you might go away with your tail between your legs and complain and moan. That's not what we're talking about. So apostasy isn't a believer's tantrum against God where maybe they get all huffy like Job but never lose their faith. Apostasy technically has nothing to do with believers whatsoever other than what we know about it up here on the board. Apostasy has to do with defection from the faith, not from saving faith. Defection from the faith, not from saving faith. We cannot defect from saving faith. But we can walk away, if we were unbelievers, from the faith. Does that make sense? And there's a distinction. So apostasy has to do with defection from the faith, not from saving faith. Only an unbeliever can defect from Christianity, a.k.a. the faith. True believers cannot, lest they make Jesus a liar, who said in John 18.9, Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. So it's impossible, in other words, for a believer to apostatize or defect from faith. So please never become confused by passages that appear to say that a believer can lose their salvation. 
Some people use apostasy passages to teach against the doctrine of eternal security. Do not be fooled. Believers never lose their salvation, ever. That would make God a liar. So the issue with apostasy is not a person who has real faith and then somehow loses it. The issue with apostasy is a person who is in the faith, maybe abiding in the religion of the faith, was professing faith, but actually hadn't been given true faith by grace yet from God. And that leaves the logic, if you would, open to a defection, an actual defection, which we see in Scripture in many, many cases. So believers never lose their salvation. However, just because someone professes to be a believer, and maybe they are even, quote, faithful to their religion, it doesn't mean they cannot apostatize. Also, while the biblical accounts typically reveal a physical movement associated with apostasy, it is not necessary. Apostasy is something that happens right here. In other words, a person can apostatize while still sitting in their seat at church. That's not something a believer can ever do. Stated differently up here on the board, apostates, since they failed to be sanctified experientially, cannot possess true faith positionally. That was some of the work we did up front in this series. A person can never lose their salvation, but if they apostatize, it's really evidence of never being saved. That's what apostasy is dealing with. Not a person who can somehow lose true faith, but rather a person who never had it. And the evidence that they never had it is that they defect. Now, what that defection looks like, don't, please don't email me, especially on my vacation. Well, I have this friend, you know, or I have this loved one, you know, and uh, this, this, this stuff you're teaching is upsetting me because I don't like the thought of them possibly being apostate. Well, what do you want me to tell you? I'm teaching what the Word of God has to say. This is what the Word of God has to say. Apostasy is real. There is such thing as false professors of the faith. What's he been saying? Let's do our part and get the gospel right so that we don't contribute to that situation. It's already being contributed to enough without our help. So don't, please don't hit me up with uh, you know, those kinds of issues. Because I'm not God. And I don't know who's saved and who's not saved and who's truly an apostate and who's not. Don't hit me up with that. That's not fair to me. You know what I'm saying? It's not. That's between one person, that person, and the Lord. That's it. I'm just a teacher teaching scripture. Okay? So fair, fair. So apostates, since they failed to be sanctified experientially, cannot possess true faith positionally. A person can never lose their salvation. But if they apostatize, this is the doctrine. It's really evidence of never being saved. It's that same reverse order litmus test, if you want to call it that way, that John puts us through in the epistles after his name. Go to 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. It's not a novel concept, folks. I mean, I'd be, I'd be an idiot to think that someone hasn't gone through this church and apostatized for real. People, I mean, there's been plenty of people that have come through here, sat for a lesson or two, or maybe even longer, and then defected. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it certainly would make sense that some of them were apostate, at least at the time, or at least negative. First John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have ma- remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they, are all, they all are not of us. And that's the way it goes. Some people defect. And they prove themselves apostate. Now, they're not proving they're apostate to Pastor Ed. You see? They're proving they're apostate to God. And at that point, God has the choice, I guess, in his sovereignty to say, you're done, like Romans 1, the, the second half of Roman 1. 
which we're going to get to tonight. At that point, what that threshold is, how would I know? Don't ask me. I'm not God. And don't do it to yourself either. But we do know that apostasy exists. So that's a picture of apostasy there given by the Apostle John. Again, apostasy applies to unbelievers, not believers. This is one other way to look at it. The sin unto death versus apostasy. God will kill a believer. It's his final form of grace is the sin unto death before he stops pouring grace upon their laps. However, God will give over an apostate to abide in sin. Romans 1, 24, 26, 28. We've looked at Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 multiple times. So let's go to Romans 1, 24 to see what the Spirit's saying on this topic. There is a distinction, you see. God, as far as believers are concerned, will continue to pour out grace. But there is a thing called sin unto death. He might take you out if a certain sin is so... I don't know, I guess repulsive to him or uh, whatever. I don't know what, however he does that. He can take a believer out. But that's not apostasy. That's a person who he sovereignly chooses as a believer to take out. But for unbelievers, he might, or they might get to another threshold, I don't know what it is exactly, where it is in the, the line in the sand, where he hands them over. To sin. He goes, this is what you really want? I've given you the gospel. Maybe it's more than once. And you said no. That's blasphemy of the Spirit. You said no to God, the Holy Spirit's face, in the full knowledge of the gospel. And he says, okay then. Have it your way. So Romans 1.24. Therefore, we're already into the wrath of God, which started at verse 18. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And if you know, we've read this. The second half of Romans 1 is the spiraling down of individuals. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God any longer, God what? Gave them over gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So he has that sovereign right to hand some over. Don't ask me when that happens, but it happens. But we know that can't happen unless the person, what, has a chance to believe in the gospel. Because otherwise he'd be unjust sentencing them to hell. But he will do it. Some of the most dangerous apostates, if we think practically, are those who defect from the faith and then invent a new one. As Paul would describe it, a different gospel from a different spirit, 2 Corinthians 11.4, up here on the board. This has been part of our lessons from the pulpit lately. Hey, we shouldn't tolerate that. That's garbage. We shouldn't tolerate convenient, accommodating Gospels just because our so-called loved ones are having a hard time accepting it because they're arrogant as all heck. We shouldn't water something down. We shouldn't do that. We should give them the up front. That's why I wrote that booklet. So that you'll be equipped. 2 Corinthians 11.4 For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. That was an indictment on the Corinthians. We don't want to fall into that. It says elsewhere in Scripture, as we've been noting, that a person who preaches a false gospel is to be what? Accursed. Peter addressed the reality that apostates 
may even be those standing behind pulpits. And I've done a fair amount of research lately and have come across multiple individuals who have had very prominent anti-Christian ministries who were originally orthodox. It's almost like equipping your enemy. And then they take what you've, what you've taught them and then they go out and then they, because they know all your, the truth about how you function, they use it against you. Sound like Satan, doesn't it? Think of Matthew 4. So there's a fair amount of that garbage going on as well. Apostates that stand behind pulpits and they know enough about the Christian language, let's say, the faith, the faith, to be very damaging because they speak all the right words and say all the right things, quote-unquote. Sadly, many people have followed them, but as Peter reveals, this apostasy is nothing new. Go to 2 Peter 2.1, 2 Peter 2.1. So even from behind pulpits, apostasy is not something that's new. Second Peter two one. But false prophets also arose among, or from within even, arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not sleep. Up here on the board, apostates, and this is how we ended on Sunday, I believe, apostates had a profession of faith at one time, but not the possession of faith. Their mouths spoke something other than what their hearts believed. Apostasy is not loss of salvation, but evidence of past pretension. In this basic sense, it is reserved for unbelievers only. So you should know that. Believers can never fall away from the faith, or real, true faith, we should say. Go to John 6.42. We've got some time left this evening. Let's read a lovely passage from the Gospel of John. And we'll get as much of this as we can out of the way. So that's all apostasy is, folks. It's a person who understands the faith, but God never gave them saving faith. That's the distinction. John 6.42, they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's very important. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. You're not going to get to the Father unless, in other words, you're elect, unless you actually have the calling, which is a hard issue. Does that make sense? So no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, just because a religious person says, I'm a Christian, they can't force their way through the gate. They might run up right next to it and claim they're in the boat, claim they're in the, the, the sheepfold, but unless God drew, drew them, they're not in. And that may sound very somber to some people, but that's the sovereign right of God. And that's how serious something like apostasy is. Because it literally rests on that statement. The person who apostatizes was never drawn by God. Because if God saw the heart, it would be guaranteed that they were saved. Does that make sense? Listen, listen to that. God sees a heart in eternity past. And let's just play a funny game stupid to play it, but you know what I'm saying. Even if you said, I don't want it, too bad, if that makes sense. It doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean, right? If, in other words, if you're elect, you're elect. You're going to be saved. And if you're not, you won't be saved. 
So there's no charging the gate, so to speak. There's no shoehorning your way into salvation. Okay? So this is an anchor statement to what he's about to convey to this mixed group of unbelievers and believers. He's even going to split his so-called disciples. So this is where context matters. This is where you don't become hyper-doctrinalized and say every disciple is a believer and every, every believer is a disciple, but every disciple ever described in Scripture must be, a, must be a believer. So he's going to split his so-called disciples. Remember, someone else, John's writing the word disciple. He's going to split these disciples into two groups as well. Those whom God has called by grace as his own versus those who simply proclaim to be his disciples. In other words, the most basic definition of a disciple is a student. A true disciple of Jesus is a saved student. But you can be, think about it. In, let me finish this. In context here, in this passage, a disciple is merely a student, some of which will apostatize, as we'll see in the passage. Likewise today, think about it this way. There are many who are disciples, quote-unquote, of the Christian faith. Some are even in seminary. Some of those individuals that I was alluding to before, the ones who started off orthodox and then now have very successful anti-Christian, satanic, quote-unquote, Christian ministries, guess what? They were disciples of the faith in seminary. So how in the world did they apostatize? Very easy, because they were never saved. They were now, you can go do, you can get your PhD at a seminary, it doesn't mean you're saved. And you get three of them, it still doesn't mean you're saved. God sees the what? There are many who are, quote, disciples of the Christian faith, some even in seminary that will fall away later on and apostatize. So this passage may trip up the hyper-doctrinalizers who like to hang entire doctrines on mere words. That is a huge mistake. I always go back to the, the kitty cat example with love. An unbeliever can love their cat. I'm not going to tell them they don't love their cat. But it's not the same love that I have. It's still the same word, is it not? But it's not the same love that I have for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's not hang our hats on words. John 6.45 It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes, he who believes, not even necessarily calls themselves a disciple or follows Jesus for a time. Not everybody who says they're a student of Jesus for a time believes and has eternal life. Compare John 6.45 and 47. It is possible for someone to learn and not believe, to be a, quote, disciple and not a true believer. Jesus continues, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and will, I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Reminds me of John, uh, even um, Ezekiel. They're, they actually have to eat scrolls. <laughs> and that's a figurative statement of sort of digesting it in the soul. It's not just learning. These people were learning truth, right? Jesus said, hey, listen, if you don't do this, you, can't, you don't have eternal life. And they're like, what do you mean? And meanwhile, the believers are digesting. They're 
eating the truth. And that's the distinction. A true disciple of Jesus Christ eats it, takes it in, says, you come to me, you're never going to thirst, you'll never hunger. What does that mean? What does that even mean to an unbeliever? An unbeliever is like, what are you, a whack job? Nicodemus said, well, i got to get back in my mother's womb to be born again, right? But yet, Nicodemus was smart enough to what? Learn. He heard what Jesus said. He learned the doctrines of the faith, but didn't believe them. Right? So that's all Jesus was saying. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. In context, you see, there are so-called, quote, disciples learning what he is saying, listening intently, and not believing it. That's the source pool of apostates. They learn it, but they don't believe it. They may even follow it, quote, faithfully, but they don't have any faith. So in context, you see there are so-called disciples learning what he is saying, listening intently, and not believing it. These are the ones that apostatize before the passage is complete. Let's go. Verse 57 As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, current students of his, when they heard this, this is said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Up here on the board. Again, remember, context is key. Don't ever do that thing. I've personally learned my lesson. Don't ever hang your hat on little short definitions and then make doctrines out of them. First, discipleship in the generic sense. A person can be a disciple of anyone. For example, a student can learn from someone, gain knowledge, and not believe it. They may be members of a church even. Judas was described as a disciple, and he apostatized, right? Heck, he was a, an apostle. So please get away from hanging your hats on single words. Context is key. Let's continue. Verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who what? Do not believe. And who is he talking to? The disciples, quote unquote. But there are some who do not believe. That means you, can be a, you could have been a dis, quote unquote, disciple of Christ and not a believer. That's the person who apostatizes, maybe. Certainly the source pool of apostasy. Does that make sense? Jesus said himself, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Again, we see that same distinction between disciples and true disciples, which are believers. Verse 65 And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted granted him from the Father. And then 666. Isn't that interesting? Kind of creepy, isn't it? I'm just kidding. Doomsday! Armageddon! I'm just kidding. Isn't that what most people would do? Oh, it's John 666. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and we're not walking with him anymore. How's that work? Because they didn't believe. That's what apostates do. They don't believe it. So it, I, just a side note, it's interesting that the chapter and verse is 666. But don't put too much into that since the original languages don't even have such designations. But it is interesting. I mean, God knew that the Bible would be that way. Just something to think about. Talk about apostasy, though. End times. 1 Timothy 4.1, 
But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, apostatize. So those are end-time things. Apostasy is an end-times prophecy. There's going to be a lot of people, in other words, following a lot of screwed-up religions that are going to realize they're not saved when it's too late even, possibly. And then they're going to recruit people. We had a wonderful discussion last night at the Bible study how misery loves misery and loves company, right? And there's going to be this big falling away as part of end times prophecy. People that maybe were on the right track and then get sucked away by doctrines of demons. By choice. So, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, apostatize, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In any case, verse 6 66 again. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Appear on the board. Many of his disciples withdrew. Those were those who were learning from him, <coughs> but never truly believed. He called them out. He said, Some of you don't even believe, so those who were learning from him but never truly believed apostatized. While they were known to others as disciples, they were not believers. John 647 64 verse 67 let's finish up this passage before i close so jesus said to the 12 you do not want to go away also do you simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go you have words of eternal life we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of god jesus answered them did i myself not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So what we have with Judas is what we might call, conveniently, the arch-apostate. I mean, think about that. This guy walked with Jesus Christ for three years. Quote-unquote, 24-7, so to speak. All the time. And he was an unbeliever. And everybody was fooled, except Jesus. But everybody was fooled. Judas, a disciple, oh yeah, he's an apostle. Heck yeah. But in the end, what does he do? Apostatize. Why? Because he was never a believer. That's what apostasy is. You have all the facts of the faith, but you don't have saving faith. That's what an apostasy is. So Judas was chosen by Jesus, labeled with the twelve, a known disciple and apostle, yet all the labels meant nothing because he was an unbeliever all along, hence his apostatizing. We obviously have more work to do on this, but suffice to say that I believe the reason why all of this keeps coming up, especially the concept of apostasy, and that many will fall away, proving themselves unbelievers as time marches on, is because and I've said this from the pulpit many times over the past couple of months, I believe there are, as sad as this makes me, and if you, I believe there are a lot more people who are unsaved than most choose to believe, including the false professors, who, as we'll continue to see, under pressure will be revealed by their fruit. Yeah. That's what I believe. I don't think that's disjoint at all with Scripture. I didn't say it's a narrow gate. I didn't say few who find it. I didn't say strive to enter it. I didn't say count the cost. That's Jesus. I didn't say deny yourself. I didn't say all those things. That was Jesus. So I think there's a lot of people who are going to fall into that same trap and hear those awful words, I never knew you. So I hate to leave on such a somber note, but I find that such things are motivating, if nothing else. Motivating. To do what? Let's just get the gospel right. Let's get it out there. Even if it's offensive, 
to 99% of the people that we run into, whatever. 1%. I was having a discussion with someone today. If your whole life is, like, seriously grotesque, but you're saved, you know, somehow in the midst of it, and you don't do a whole lot of, like, um, soul-saving, and, you know, you have your own problems and this kind of a thing, but you give someone the gospel as your last sort of piece of giving to the world, and they're saved. Your whole life, as far as God was concerned, is worth it. Every struggle you went through, every pain that you suffered, whether, you know, deserved or undeserved, whatever you went through, if one person, if you gave one person that gospel, you got it right, and they were saved, one 70-year, 80-year life for all of eternity, there's no comparison. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.